In a year that seemed like it couldn't get any crazier or sadder, the stunning news dropped on a Friday night. Associate Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, liberal icon, feminist hero, was dead. While mourners gathered on the steps of the Supreme Court, some reciting Kaddish, the Jewish prayer for those who have passed, the political world immediately realized the country was now facing a Supreme Court confirmation battle for the ages. The balance of power on the court, and likely the future of American law for decades, was now at stake. As President Trump prepares to nominate a conservative replacement for Ginsburg, and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell gears up to rush the pick through the Senate before Election Day, we'll talk to two political activists certain to be in the middle of the fight, Nan Aaron of the Liberal Alliance for Justice and Ed Whalen of the Conservative Ethics and Public Policy Center on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their presidents are crooked. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, all I could think of after, of course, you know, the sadness of learning about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing is the opening of my favorite Washington movie, Advise and Consent, in which uh, the news that the Secretary of State has died and there's going to be a massive, mammoth, epic confirmation battle over his replacement sweeps through Washington and everybody starts angling and uh, applauding strategy. And that's sort of exactly what we're looking at at right now and what was I think uh, the you know when the movie gets made of what we're about to go through that's how it will start yeah I, I, it is one of those moments where I think like a lot of people remember where they were when they heard uh, the news that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had died because you know first of all you know there are not a lot of events that have the kind of like de depth and profundity that that news did first of all you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was this this icon, um, this hero to a lot of people, and also a cultural figure. I mean, one of the rare, I mean, I can't think of a Supreme Court justice who, who broke through the culture in the way that she did. And then, you know, you, that's the first thought you have. And then you immediately realize this has huge consequences for the country, because uh, of the vacancy it leaves on a divided court, the likelihood that the court will be 6-3 with conservatives in the majority. And then you think about the impact that this could have on the election. I mean, it's just, you know, wave after wave of meaning here. And then heightened, of course, by all of the other things that well, we're going through right now, living in a pandemic all of the issues around uh, racial justice and, and, and protests and a looming election that um, is, you know, just to, you know, the cliche that everyone used, probably the most <laughs> consequential election of our lives. So right. you and I have both covered a lot of Supreme Court 
nominations and confirmation battles, and they all are freighted with you know great meaning and drama. But I don't think anyone like like this one. Yeah, and I gotta say, I was wrong on Friday night because you know my first instinct is. No, McConnell and the Republicans wouldn't really dare to try a to bridge push. too far, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I know it was a bridge. I know too we're far. like these, like you know, these jaded, you yeah. know, cynical, you know, Washington reporters, and we were. I was in like my the Slack channel with our colleagues about this, and I said it won't happen. McConnell can't do this. It yeah. won't be and tolerated. Then, and, then McCon- and-, and then McConnell gave that statement Friday night saying that he, you know, fully expects the Senate will vote on a replacement for Ruth Bader Ginsburg before President Trump leaves office. And then I thought wrong again that he was just doing this for political reasons, that the conservatives had to, you know, show the evangelicals that they were going to make the effort, that here was a, uh, a there was a, a chance to finally, finally, you know, save the lives of unborn babies and overturn Roe versus Wade. And they had to at least go through the motions of having a Supreme Court pick by the president and then, you know, going through the motions of uh, a confirmation hearing. But no, I was wrong on both counts. McConnell is really going to do this. Yeah, I mean, remaking the uh, judiciary in, into a uh, you know bastion of ideological conservatives is Mitch McConnell's life work. Life yeah. work. Um, you know, this is you know people talk about McConnell caring only about power, and to some extent, you know, this is about power, but it is also about building his own uh, legacy. And the other thing I will say is that you know, having covered a lot of these confirmation battles uh, before. You never know until it's over. I mean, how many of these uh, fights have we covered when there's been some surprise? And I do think there still are some questions about how this is going to play out. I mean, I think it's, uh, if not a foregone conclusion, very likely that Republicans, that, that President Trump will get his nominee confirmed. The only doubt I have in my mind is, you know, if they can't get it done before the election— and we'll talk about this with our guests uh, coming up, and Trump loses, the Republicans lose the Senate, the political complexion changes. I think it becomes harder. There is a chance that some of the more moderate Republicans, not that there are many of them, but a handful, would break off at that point um, and not support confirmation of a Supreme Court justice in a lame duck session where you have a Democratic president about to take office and a Democratic Senate about to be seated. Those are a lot of ifs, but, you know. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. see. Listen, I think the election results are going to matter a lot if it's a landslide for Biden. Right, and, and right. If, and right. if the Democrats take clear control of the Senate, uh, yeah, McConnell could try in a lame duck session to, you know, ram Trump's pick through. But, um Wow, the potential backlash from that and also what the Democrats might do once they take control, including packing the court. Uh, Oh, yeah, right. The the other thing is, is, you know, it's conventional wisdom in Washington that um, Supreme Court confirmation battles energize Republicans and conservatives much more than it does liberals and Democrats. But there are indications that that may not be the case this time around. I think... um, 
Act Blue, the Democratic fundraising platform, raised $100 million in the 38 hours after Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I, I, I don't know that that tells us that much about you know, what, where voters are as a whole. Certainly that suggests that, you know, wealthy liberal elites elites and activists are going to be energized on both sides unquestionably. And people are going to be angrier than they've ever been. But does that translate to, you know, votes for Democratic Senate candidates and vote for Biden over Trump uh, more so than the evangelicals and uh, religious conservatives and other conservatives who do want to see a Supreme Court remade? I mean, I don't know. It could be a wash. I'm just saying I'm not sure it's going to be the clear advantage for the Republicans that it has been in the past. There is a lot at stake this time around that hasn't been the case in the past. And there's also a lot of passion and anger on the Democratic side. So we'll just have to see uh, what happens. All right. We'll be getting into this with our uh, our two excellent guests. But uh, right now there are two leading candidates who everybody's talking about, Amy Coney Barrett and uh, Barbara LaGoya. And, uh, you know, both are getting a lot of scrutiny. I give the edge to LaGoya. She's from Florida. She's Cuban-American. It helps with the Latino vote, certainly with the Cuban-American vote. Most importantly, in Florida, any edge uh, Trump can get in what is an absolute must-carry state for him, um, he's going to go there. uh, Because uh, first and foremost, uh, I think... I think it's pr- the evidence is pretty clear for the president. Uh, this is f- always about his reelection, and if she can help more, then. But we will see. We should know in a day or so. Since we, yeah, since we, you know, mentioned at the beginning of this conversation that we've been wrong about everything <laughs> to do with this <laughs> right. this story. This will probably yeah. uh, uh, give uh, this probably probably will, like you know make sure that Amy Coney Barrett gets the nod from from Trump. But uh, we got two great guests to talk about it. And before we go, just want to say that everyone ought to tweet at us and uh, give us their feedback. Uh, we love to hear it, especially when the news um, is as crazy as it is right now. So it's at Skullduggery Pod, and we're looking forward to hearing from you all. Let's get to it. All right. We are now joined by Nan Aaron, the president of Alliance for Justice and a longtime lobbyist for progressive judges on the Supreme Court and elsewhere around the country. Nan, welcome to Skullduggery. It's always fun to talk to you both. (laughs) All right. Well, I don't imagine you view this as fun times at the moment, but give us your take on where you think things stand right now on what's looking like the uh, ultimate Supreme Court confirmation battle royale, perhaps in American history? Well, at this very moment, the White House has narrowed its list of candidates, talking to senators and constituency groups from around the country and trying to round up the votes, round up support, Plus, I'm assuming they want to engage in a very thorough, complete vet of whoever they put up because they 
do not want to have happened what happened with Brett Kavanaugh, namely a, a surprise. So I, I believe they're using this time this week to thoroughly vet whoever it is they're going to send to the Senate. So, Nan, um, that will affect the timeline, obviously. And I'm curious if you think there's any chance they can bring this to a vote before the election or if it's going to have to be in a lame duck session. I think they can do whatever they want. We've seen before that they're willing to break traditions, dismantle customs that have been used in the Senate for years around judicial selections. I think they'll do exactly what they want to do, including move ahead, maybe even before they get a rating from the American Bar Association. They may lean on the FBI to conduct a really quick investigation. They may limit the hearing in the Judiciary Committee to a day. I don't think any of us knows at this point. And whatever it is, it'll be a political calculation. What will help them more? So, and then the two leading contenders appear to be Amy Conan Barrett, circuit court judge, and, and Barbara Lagoya. How do you pronounce it? Lago- it is Lagawa. Lagawa. Now, they've both been vetted. They've both been confirmed. Uh, Lagawa actually quite substantially with a lot of Democratic support. So, does there have to be a full FBI background uh, investigation, given that there presumably already would have been one in the last few years? And is the vetting, you know, how much additional vetting do you think there would have to be? I apologize. It's Lagoa. Um, Do I think there needs to be additional vetting? Yes. They knew from the start when they sent Lagoa's name and Barrett's name to the Senate that they would be confirmed without any problem whatsoever. In fact, both garnered some Democratic votes. Again, I just don't think the Republicans this time around want any reason to give the Democrats to ask for a delay. They don't want facts to emerge that perhaps they skipped over. So I do think they they will conduct a, a more thorough and more national vet. They'll probably speak to a lot more people. They'll probably scour writings. And I should say, particularly with Amy Coney Barrett, some groups, including ours, prepared lengthy reports on their records. And I'm sure the White House will be able to answer all the, try to answer the criticisms that we raised in our report. And we also researched Legault's background as well. Although, frankly, there there wasn't as much in her background as there was Amy Coney Barrett's. We're going to want to get to those two potential nominees in particular, who I understand are the leading candidates, although there may be some more people on the list. But even before, you know, before you can get to a vote, you have to, the Republicans are going to have to have enough senators to be in favor of going forward. And already we know that Lisa Murkowski of Alaska and Susan Collins of Maine have said that they, they should not go forward until after the election, even until there's a new president inaugurated. So do you hold out any hope that any of the other Republicans will 
side with Murkowski and Collins, whether it's Mitt Romney or Cory Gardner, who, who's in a tough re-election fight in Colorado, or any of the others? I always hold that so. <laughs> I mean, it's politics, so anything could happen. I mean, who would have thought when repeal of the health care law was up in the Senate that McCain would vote the way he did? I don't think anyone predicted that beforehand. So, yeah. Okay, you hold out hope, but I have to say, Nan, I've known you for a long time, I hear a little resignation in your, vo- in your voice. You know, are there things that uh, the Democrats can do to stop this nomination from being rammed through other than some surprise revelation as what happened in the in Kavanaugh or you know maybe other cases but what's the strategy what are what are democrats doing to try to stop this well i do think the democrats will look at who's ever record it is really carefully i do i know democrats are reaching across the political aisle speaking to their republican colleagues there may be a few who are open to conversations someone like mitt romney whose name has been mentioned several times over the weekend republicans running for re-election need the support of the right-wing base of their parties in the states. And they know the surest way to win, get those voters to the polls is to promise to deliver yet another Supreme Court justice who will then pledge to overturn Roe versus Wade. So I think anyone running, and again, hopefully I'm wrong, will go along with the president on this. And no one wants to invite the president to come into his or her state and be cri- and offer criticism at this particular moment. So I think for candidates, it's unlikely that any of them will choose to offer a, a view different from the president's. So Nan, I'm not hearing an answer to uh, Dan's question. What's the strategy? What what's the play that you got uh, given that the you know McConnell and the Republicans appear to have the votes? So here's the strategy. I mean, the strategy here's. Here's the situation. Unlike any time before in the past 40 years, progressives are more galvanized, are more active, are more energized over judgeships than any other time I can remember. How does that get you votes in the Senate? And it's not just because of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We saw people come out of the woodwork. Over 100,000 teachers came out against Stephen Menashe's nomination to the Second Circuit. We saw mothers of transgender youth come out in a spectacular way against Man, the- that's wonderful. How does it get you votes in the Senate, or how does it get you a delay in a, a, a vote before the election? It will translate into wins in the election. It will translate into voters on the left, and hopefully most voters will realize, will understand at the end of the day that a vote for a Republican candidate will give us judges who will, among other things, take away health care for millions of Americans in the middle of a pandemic. I think voters will go to the polls, and I think 
candidates will say, Republicans, you do this to us. We win the Senate. We, Democrats win back the Senate. Democrats win the White House. All options are on the table. Including right, no, but 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 wait, just to be clear, Nat, first of all, that doesn't help you in stopping a confirmation before the election, right? And it may not necessarily stop Mitch McConnell during a lame duck session either. So is there anything, any strategy before the election that you think can work to at least stop confirmation, a pre-election confirmation? One, we do think that the case will be so strong against confirming another Trump justice that we will be able to convince we need two more Republicans to hold off from voting until after inauguration. I mean, that's what we've got to count on. After all, in the mid, I still go back to the point that in the middle of a pandemic costing 200,000 lives of Americans, people have to be afraid. Senators have to take into account that putting another justice on the Supreme Court who will take away health care would threaten the lives of, of Americans now and, and in the future. I think that is the strategy. Health care, health care, health care. Nan, I have to think that your this strategy becomes maybe a little easier if the Republicans can't push this through before the election. In other words, they have to do this in a lame, lame duck session. A big part of their argument has been that, that they've got a mandate right now because Republicans elected Donald Trump and they elected a Republican Senate and then added to their majority in 2018. If the Democrats were to win back the Senate you know, on November 3rd and if Joe Biden is elected, that mandate is somewhat diminished. Do you agree with that? I do agree with that. I would offer another reason, too, which is it won't be as important after the election to drive Republican voters to the polls. Um, right. The right. election will be over. Remember, when Trump was running for president in 2016, the only thing he talked about was the Supreme Court, wherever he went. And that's what they're relying on. It's, it's desperation time for them. So here's my follow-up question. If that is the case, and there are only, what, 42, 41 days until, until the election, I think both Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sandra Day O'Connor were their nominations went through in around that amount of time. I think Sandra Day O'Connor was 38 days. But still, a lot of Republicans have said it's going to be hard, not impossible, but hard to get this done before the election. Are there any things that the Democrats can and should be doing to try to slow this process down? I mean, are there any parliamentary maneuvers or tricks that they have in their bag to slow it down at all? I really think it's the people who are who will have to rise up. I don't see any procedural maneuvers at this point. I know some have been under consideration, threatening not to vote on a continuing resolution. Someone mentioned impeachment hearings in the House. I, at the moment, don't see anything the Senate can do. What I do see is enough Americans 
weighing in with their senators and saying this this is just going too far. This is a turn we don't want to take because if we do, it will be irreversible, not just for next year, but for decades. But to do that, we all of us need need to get the word out. I mean, the consequences of, of confirming another judge who will take away rights, turn the country, um, turn back the country, you know, do away with health care, abortion, workers' rights, environmental protections is a real threat. And I think at this moment, people will understand it. I also think there's another factor. I went to the vigil Saturday night, and I expected at the Supreme Court in Washington, D.C., I expected to see a few hundred people. There were thousands of people, and not only thousands of people, most of whom were young, 20s, 30s. They follow Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They were inspired by her. They watched her movies. They saw her on TV. You've got a, a population in this country that was captivated by this woman the likes of which I've never seen. When Antonin Scalia died, I mean, maybe a few people gathered at the Supreme Court. She was a hero to so many people, particularly young people. She broke I, through the culture in a way did. that no Supreme Court justice has. And, and, and she so made she it has... real. She made it real. And she brought home to people, more importantly, just why a Supreme Court justice is so important. So, Nan, in 2016, when President Obama nominated Merrick Garland and Republicans refused to give him a vote, you were pretty outraged and denounced that, along with other progressive groups, saying that uh, the Constitution uh, gives the president the power to nominate a Supreme Court justice and the Senate to advise and consent. So why... Was it wrong for the Republicans to argue that President Obama's pick shouldn't come up for a vote, but it's okay for you to argue now the precise opposite, that uh, there should not be a vote for President Trump's nominee? Well, first of all, I think they laid down the gauntlet. Yeah, but you don't. You didn't accept their rule then. Why do you accept it now? Why are you taking the Republican position in right. 2016, which is that uh, a, a nominee should sure. not be confirmed during election year? So there are two reasons. Number one, we have now seen over three and a half years Republicans systematically dismantle every rule, every custom regarding the confirmation of judges. Wasn't it you know, Harry Reid who did away with the filibuster ha- for, for this judges? very important. This is very important. Harry Reid only did away with the filibuster because Republicans would not allow any vote to take place on a court of appeals judge. And there were vacancies on our courts of appeals at the time. And Republicans simply would not allow votes to go forward, leaving dozens and dozens of seats open on the courts of appeal. So 
here we've seen over the past three and a half years, the filibuster is gone for the Supreme Court. The blue slip rule has, is now gone for circuit courts of appeal. We've seen Republican senators condone lying. Just look at the hearing of Brett Kavanaugh. We saw senators allow hearings to go forth without candidates having to provide information about their records. Remember, Brett Kavanaugh shared almost nothing of his record during the years he was staff secretary at the White House. So they've broken every rule. The process is broken. And for now, the Democrats to say, oh, I'm just so sorry the process is broken. We're going to take the high road. The reason they can't, cannot do that is because 200 judges have been confirmed to every level of our judiciary since Trump. And every single one of those judges are individuals who adhere to the strictest ideological, hard right jurisprudence you can imagine. All of them share opposition to abortion, health care, civil rights, workers' rights. There's not one, and believe me, we look at every single nominee, not one who shows any predisposition to having an open mind on issues. They were selected because Republicans can count on them to be reliable, reliably hard right judges. So I want to I want us to get into a little bit of a discussion of the uh, leading contenders here. But before we do that, just one more question on the politics and the process. You, I think earlier in the conversation, you alluded to the threat of retaliation. You talked about everything being on the table. Is that a reference to expanding the sides of the Supreme Court, also getting rid of the legislative filibuster? What, what do you have in mind when you talk about everything being on the table? I think there are a few options. One is expanding the numbers. And do you support that? Would, would you support that? I have never been a support. Alliance has not been, has not taken a position on court expansion, only because we feel that the Supreme Court has a critically important mission to perform for, for, for our democracy. At this point, if they ram through another justice on the Supreme Court, they're essentially saying, look, these are politicians in judicial robes. We're going to see the court as a political institution. What we can't get through Congress will certainly litigate in the courts and rely on the Supreme Court to bend to our wishes is essentially what the result will be if they are able to get this sixth justice. And and in that view, just think about those six justices will represent just a small segment of the American population. I do think in that instance, it's important to reassert balance on the Supreme Court, to get justices who are open-minded, fair-minded, independent, and won't necessarily make promises and pledges, as this nominee will undoubtedly do to President Trump. And and so under that scenario, you and the Alliance of Justice, you would support? support Court expansion, yes. But look what we've come to. Who would have imagined that at this moment in time, with so many issues at stake, problems to resolve, complicated 
matters for all of us to be solving, we have to tinker with the structure of the court. But it will be absolutely necessary to ensure that everyday people get a fair shake in the Supreme Court. And with six justices, knowing who they are, what their jurisprudence has been, what their records show, we'd have no choice. And you know that one day, and it may not be too far from now, the Republicans will control both chambers and, and the presidency, and they will add justices of their liking to the court, and it becomes an arms race. It becomes a power race, right? It becomes a race in power. It becomes. Hasn't, hasn't it, isn't it already that? Yes. I mean, here's the difference. Republicans see courts as pathways to power. It's always been the case. And liberals. Democrats see the courts as pathways to justice. But you do have a party that has really exerted enormous power to get their judges on the bench. Look at the eight years of Obama judges. The overwhelming number of judges put on the federal courts at all levels were either former prosecutors or corporate lawyers. President Obama was, by all accounts, extremely careful in naming judges. I should say his judges have proved to have been independent and open-minded, exemplary judges, but he put very few card-carrying members of the progressive left on the federal bench. He was very, very cautious in his picks. Are you upset about that? We believed fervently then, and we will approach judicial selection differently with the expectation that the next Democratic president will choose make not only demographic diversity, but also look to public defenders, legal aid lawyers, civil rights lawyers, icons in academic life, experiential diversity. So wait, just a, just a quick follow-up on that. So I just want to be clear because you're saying you are disappointed that uh, President Obama did not nominate more progressives, more ideological progressives in line with the perspective of Alliance for Justice to the court? Well, it wasn't just President Obama. It was, it was a missed opportunity. It was, it was, it was Democratic senators as well. I, I will say, however, if Barack Obama were on your show at the moment, he would say, look, I came into office. I had a financial crisis to deal with. I had a health care crisis to deal with. I couldn't do all that much at one time. My response to that is, if the Democrats win the White House this year, we are currently conducting a uh, project known as Building the Bench, which has already collected hundreds of names to fill judgeships. So our expectation is that the next president will begin to fill judicial openings on day one. Well, that next president is someone who you have known for a long time um, and you have, I think, worked with in, t- you know, in, in, in tandem, but also, you know, sometimes not 
been on the same page with him, and that's Joe Biden, who knows a thing or two about confirmation hearings, was the longtime chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. First of all, are you satisfied with what he has said so far about this vacancy and how the, how the Republicans, and in terms of the Republicans wanting to ram this through, and what makes you think that he will be an advocate for the kinds of uh, judges and justices that you would like to see on the bench? I am satisfied with what he said because he's made two central points. One, just wait. Wait until there's a president inaugurated in place. And I think absolutely. Number two, his talking points are absolutely right on point. And that is, let's look at what's at stake for the American people. The environment, consumer, civil rights, women's rights. I think he is been absolutely on target, and I'm very pleased with what he's going to say. I think the difference is that when he comes into office, we will be, we meaning progressives from around the country, will be the wind at his back. We're going to push. I've never been afraid of pushing. I never will be afraid. And we will, I think, knowing how many people are now prioritizing this issue, we'll ask them to make this a real priority for administration. Man, let's go back to these uh, two leading contenders. Uh, The White House is is believed to be vetting right now, Amy Conan Barrett and Barbara LaGoya. Uh, What do you got on them? Tell us what you know about them, what arguments you would use uh, substantively to argue against their confirmation. So I think most importantly, the president has already shared with us his litmus test. So we have to assume that anyone he picks will subscribe to his beliefs and, in fact, promise. They will say at their hearing, of course, I made no promises. But we know, oh, all we have to do is look back in time when Harriet Myers was nominated by George W. Bush. She was nominated for a Supreme Court slot, and then she was withdrawn after a couple weeks because the right-wingers weren't sufficiently sure that she would be a reliable candidate. We can assume there will be reliability with this candidate. The president has said he will, he will pick candidates who, one, oppose the Affordable Care Act, and two, and will rule against the Affordable Care Act, and two, will overturn, vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. So in any event, with respect to either Lagoa or Amy Coney Barrett, we can be assured that they've guaranteed the White House that, that they will do both. We know. So if they, wait a second, if they uh, testify under oath that they made no promises, you're going to assume that they're lying? Oh, you mean people lie at their confirmation here? No, no, no. I mean, but look, these are federal judges. Uh, you know, uh, they. I don't know if you have evidence that they have committed perjury in the past, but if they testify that they made no such promises, you're going to say they shouldn't be believed? If I collected a nickel for every nominee who swore to the committee they would follow precedent, and then once confirmed, did just the opposite, I would be the richest lady in America today. I think even recently, Brett Kavanaugh 
Neil Gorsuch promised the committee after being sworn in, I will never overturn precedent. Well, both have certainly in their decisions indicated a willingness to overturn precedent. Gorsuch uh, wrote the opinion for LGBT rights. Uh, that was I, a, a pretty uh, landmark decision that you never would have expected and showed that there is more independence than you give him credit for. I will say that if you look at the totality of what Neil Gorsuch has done on the Supreme Court, yes, he's got one or two opinions that stand out as unusual, but by and large, on most of the issues, abortion, workers' rights, consumer protections, environmental protections, he's gone along, uh, voting rights too. Well, anyway, back to my question about these, about these two. So in any event, I'm not willing to call any, accuse anyone of perjury. I've just heard too many of these nominees go up and profess their integrity. So Amy Coney Barrett, has now been on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals for a couple of years. She's 48 years old, has seven children. Once said that she would allow her jurisprudence to be guided by her religion, is right there with President Trump in uh, seeking to overturn Roe versus Wade. She criticized the opinion written by John Roberts on uh, in upholding the Affordable Care Act. So we can assume on those two critical issues, she'll be a foot, foot soldier in Trump's army. If people look on our website, they can see a much fuller exposition of her record. Barbara Lagoa, young, a Latinx, Cuban-American from Florida, I think is probably gaining an appeal for this White House that very much wants to win Florida in the upcoming election. But again, if you look at her record, she was one of the lawyers representing Elian Gonzalez, making an effort to keep him in the United States rather than returning him to his father in Cuba. She's got an absolutely abysmal opinion on the, in the she's now holds a Florida seat on the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, but she upheld a, a referendum. She said that the referendum upholding the ability of felons to vote was wrong. They could only vote after they paid their fines and restitution, which will have the effect of um, saying the tens of thousands of ex-felons in Florida will not be able to, to go to the polls. She's got a terrible opinion regarding minimum wage. She made it much harder for homeowners to defend themselves against bank. She said Uber drivers are not entitled to unemployment benefits. So on issues that are really important to everyday Americans, She's uh, ruled in favor of the banks, wealthy corporations, and it's certainly in that voting rights case, that will be a real problem. I but no, no paper trail on, on uh, abortion, as far as you know? No, but from what I can tell, she was such a hero to the Federal Society that Leonard Leo, its head, flew down to Florida, I think, on one occasion to be her cheerleader. 
I mean, you've got to assume that this White House has vetted each and every Court of Appeals candidate to ensure their support for overturning Roe. But that will certainly be an issue that Republicans are looking at at this very moment. Because as you know, we've got some senators like Hawley from Indiana who have openly- He's from Missouri. Thank you. Thank you. Who have said- what we're here for. (laughs) That they will not confirm anyone who is soft on overturning Roe versus Wade. Are are you absolutely convinced that, you know, if one of these two judges ends up being the nominee and and is confirmed, that the uh, conservatives on the court will have all the votes they need to overturn Roe? There's certainly doubt about John Roberts. Are you convinced that both Kavanaugh and Gorsuch would be votes to overturn Roe? And given what Mike just said about oh, where Gorsuch was, for sure on- Gorsuch, for for sure Kavanaugh. I mean, look at Kavanaugh's record on the D.C. Circuit with respect to abortion. Uh, well, he's never ruled on. No, he hasn't on the Roe underlying. Roe, but he's yeah. been very tricky in terms of abortion. He hasn't overturned Roe versus Wade. But remember, on the Court of Appeals his ruling would have had the effect with respect to a young immigrant woman, the obstacles that he placed in her path to getting an abortion would have made ensured that she couldn't have had a safe abortion when she wanted it. You know, I don't know. I can only surmise that with a six vote, they will do everything they possibly can to overturn Roe versus Wade, and at the very least, will continue to chip away at Roe every way they can. We've talked about um, the future Supreme Court cases, but um, let's assume that you prevail and Democrats prevail in preventing a confirmation before the election. That leaves an eight-member Supreme Court. That given what everybody is expecting to be the flood of litigation over this election, could well decide the next election, an eight-member Supreme Court in which the Republicans now have a clear majority. Does that make you nervous in and of itself to leave the court as it is when that court will be deciding, may well decide, who the next president is. Yes, it does. But it also makes me nervous to think that they might get another justice on the court as well. But we certainly can't count on this court, particularly in the area of voting, to basically do the right thing. I mean, look at the 2000 opinion in Bush versus Gore. Even the Republicans appointees on the court said, well, you know, this is our opinion, but we really don't want it to be used as precedent going forward. They knew exactly what they were doing. And, you know, presidents, particularly Republican presidents, pick justices with an eye towards guaranteeing that in some big, huge future fight, their justices will will rule in their favor. Among the nightmare scenarios here that I don't think a lot of people have focused on is with an eight-member Supreme Court 
And assuming John Roberts, who's shown an independence and concern for the you know, future integrity of the court, votes with the three liberals, you'd have a 4-4 deadlock in a Bush versus Gore <laughs> Supreme Court case on who's going to be the next president. Where does that leave the country? Well, the uh, appellate ruling would stand. But that if would there's mean... what, what appellate ruling and there could be a conflict in the appellates, right? Well, but you it could have conflicting appellate court rulings. Well, that's true, but typically in a split court, if you get a split court, you the decision really rests with the appellate court. Of course, now we've got several appellate courts that have flipped. And it would matter which appellate court um, heard the case. And we can all, we all know right now that the lawyers will be very selective in, in terms of where the litigation will be filed. But I mean, the prospect of an appeals court deciding the fate of an American election, sure. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's, I mean, I don't know it does, if there's any way around that, but. You know, one thing I think we do know that it, that would not be a solution that would please John Roberts. I do think he'd have he'd step into the fray and and no no yeah he'd step into the fray and under my scenario and vote with the liberals to you know prevent a, you know Trump's reelection when the when he doesn't deserve it that's an assumption but you know certainly that's where the polls look right now and if he does that then then there's a deadlock you know so well I think Nan is suggesting that. I mean, what is that rule that 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 if there's a dead? Well, let's see. Is there's there's no. I I, I think in the end, the next Congress would select who the next president would be in yeah. in this scenario, right? God. I mean, and then it's all a question of uh, who who controls the Senate. Um, all these the things, House. all these all yeah. this this kind of speculation would seem inconceivable, you know, any other time. <laughs> but in in the year 2020. Yeah. Anything can happen. Anything can happen. Well, man, man, uh, thanks a lot. We will definitely want to stay in touch (laughs) as we get closer and closer to uh, Supreme Court Armageddon. Thanks a lot for having me. It is always fun and a pleasure. And keep up your great work, you all of you. Thanks, Thanks, man. We are now joined by Ed Whalen, the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Ed, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you, Mike. So as I understand it, you are one of those strongly advocating for uh, President Trump to fill this Supreme Court seat now and the Senate to take it up and confirm his nominee. I guess to start out, the president seems to be focused on two candidates, Amy Conan Barrett and uh, Barbara Lagoa, both appellate court judges. What are you hearing? Who's got the uh, who's got the edge at the moment? Well, I can't pretend I'm hearing anything other than what you're hearing or reading. So I, I, I don't know. There may well be other candidates in the mix, too. What does seem likely is that whoever is selected will be someone whom the Senate has very recently confirmed to a court of appeals seat. So unlike, say, back when I handled Ruth Bader Ginsburg's nomination to the Supreme Court in 1993, and we had 13 years of a judicial record to 
wade through, uh, and we managed to do that very, very quickly. Here, there's going to be a very small additional record to go through, and I think the Senate ought to be able to be both swift and thorough. Hey, Ed, we're going to get into the judicial backgrounds of at least those two candidates that Isakoff mentioned, but can you walk us through the process a little bit if this is going to be done expeditiously? What actually needs to happen? Because, you know, there, there is the question of if it can all get done before the election or if this is more likely going to have to wait until after the election. So from Friday or Saturday, when President Trump says he will make his nominee public, what then happens? Well, you need the formal submission of the nomination to the Senate, for starters. The Senate Judiciary Committee will then decide to set a hearing. Uh, it might require that a Senate questionnaire response have been received first, and maybe some other paperwork that it requires. But the hearing in Justice Ginsburg's case took place about a month later. And after you have the hearing, you have the committee vote to report the nomination out to the full Senate, and you then have the vote on the Senate floor. What about an FBI uh, background investigation? Now, I know the FBI, in the case of, the, of Lagoa and uh, Amy Coney Barrett, that would have been done for their appellate nominations. But do they have to re-interview people? Do they, is there an addendum to that of some sort, do you know? I understand that to be a standard part of the process. I'm, you know, I, I'm sure the FBI would consider anything during one's entire lifetime relevant, but I, th- I would think that they would f- they might figure they've already done, you know, covered a very broad area, so be focused on the, the period since confirmation to the appellate seat. But I, 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 you know, I may be wrong about what uh, protocols uh, define um, FBI practice. Okay, and this is my last question just on, the, on, on process. Is it your best guess that this could happen before the election or more likely to happen uh, sometime after the election in terms of a, f- a, a vote? Well, I'm not sure what odds I would uh, set. I think it can happen before. Again, it was uh, you know a total of 42 days uh, in Ginsburg's case with a much larger record. So I think it could be done uh, in about a month. That would involve moving expeditiously. Everything would have to be done pretty promptly. Again, I think it could be done thoroughly as well. But it's possible that the floor vote would kick over until after the election. I think there's plenty of time to get the hearing done before the election. There may be, you know, political judgments. Um, I suppose I've seen people argue both ways uh, about whether it's advantageous or disadvantageous to have the uh, hearing and the floor vote before or after the election. Yeah, yeah, let's get to that. We'll get to that question as well. So, Mike. So, yeah, and just to be clear, you are advocating for the president to nominate and the Senate to take up the confirmation as quickly as possible, correct? Yeah, as quickly as can, as can fairly be done well. And I think that's, that's pretty quick. And you understand why this has so inflamed many people on the other side of the political aisle and ideological divide, primarily because of the uh, repeated public comments made during the Merrick Garland matter when Mitch McConnell and uh, and other Republicans uh, said it should not, a, a Supreme Court nominee should not be done in an election year. And just taking it a step further, you can know, interrupt, you've can interrupt seen you there? and sure. Because sure. I think I think you're you're seriously misstating the position that Mitch McConnell took from the very beginning, from his uh, very first press conference on the matter. He emphasized 
that the fact that you had a president of one party making a nomination to a Senate controlled by the opposite party. That opposite party configuration was exactly what existed when Joe Biden in 1992 uh, made his similar threat not to act on any nomination uh, that was made that year. It's, of course, the same configuration that existed in 2007, when 16 months uh, before the election, Chuck Schumer made that same threat. So it's, I, it's very strange to take McConnell's comment out of the context, which he made explicit, but which is obvious anyway, and you know, take it as though he's saying that there should never be a confirmation in an election year. One of the things he said in that press conference is, we know what would happen if the shoe was on the other foot. A nominee of a Republican president would not be confirmed by a Democratic Senate when the vacancy was created in a presidential election year. And President Obama's own former White House counsel has confirmed that she would have recommended that Senate Democrats do exactly the same thing if the shoe were on the other foot. All right. Well, let, let me finish my, my question then. <laughs> I know I, and I take your point. But I was about to say you have no doubt read and watched the comments, the previous comments of Lindsey Graham, who is now the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. In 2016, he says, I want you to use my words against me. If there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, whoever it might be, make that nomination. And you can use my words against me and You'd be absolutely right. That was in 2016. And then in, uh, in October 2018, he says, if an opening comes in the last year of President Trump's term and the primary process has started, we'll wait to the next election. Now, I get that the Republican majority can do this, but you're the president of something called the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Is it ethical to make comments like that to the public, saying you would not do this? No caveats there about if the president and the and the Senate is held are, are held by different parties. They, he was totally explicit. Is it ethical? Can you ethically defend Lindsey Graham saying that before and now saying he will expeditiously move to confirm President Trump's nominee before the election? Well, I, in fact, have not followed the ins and outs of uh, Senator Graham's statements. Um, I, I find well, it, I just read them to well, you in I, their entirety. Okay, but I, I understand that he's that he's recounted other things that he has said. I haven't studied this, but look, his first statement strikes me as a strange statement, but no, if you, if you say something like that, confused as it is, you know, uh, uh, you, you, you ought to have a good reason uh, to, to uh, uh, not follow through on what you said. Senator Graham has said he has a good reason, but you know, I'll leave that to others to, to assess. But does it trouble you to have the guy who's going to be, who is the chairman of the committee, who's going to be presiding over this confirmation fight on the record as explicitly as one can be in American politics, now doing something completely the opposite? Well, Mike, I can't possibly imagine that there's any reliance interest on that statement by Senator Graham. So, you know, again, it sounds to me as though it was an ill-advised statement in the first place. But uh, I don't think anyone can say they were wronged by it. And I think it's, uh, you know, good that Senator Graham is uh, seeing straight on the matter now. Don't you think that at the end of the day, maybe both for both sides, that people that, you know, senators are acting in partisan 
kind of nakedly partisan, self-interested ways. This whole idea of like, if this, but, you know, if this, if the shoe was on the other foot, and imagine it was a Democratic president and a Democratic Senate, what do you think the, the Republican senators in the minority would be saying right now? They'd be saying exactly what Democrats are saying, don't you think? I, I, I think so, and it's perfectly, perfectly acceptable to fight this out in the political arena. Indeed, our system contemplates that. So I have no problem with folks saying, in their view, this shouldn't happen, and in their view, that this should. Look, what's happened more broadly, and I, I think I'll get your uh, agreement, both of you, on this, is, you know, as in the stereotypical bad marriage, each side is ready to exaggerate the faults of the other, and you end up with this process of continual escalation. I don't think anyone can seriously dispute what President Obama's former White House counsel said, which, of course, Democrats would have done exactly the same thing as McConnell if the polarity... Who are you heard. referring to there, Ed? I'm sorry? Which, which former White House counsel uh, are you referring to? Uh, uh, which Catherine, former right White House counsel are you referring to? Uh, Catherine Rumler. I hope I'm pronouncing her... her Ka- yeah, uh, Rumler. Yeah, yeah, Kathy Rumler. Yeah. Yeah. And, but again, I mean, you look at what Biden said in 92, what Schumer said in 2007, this is all baked into the process for so long. It's, it's, it, one has to, you know, to pre- pretend a real naivete to, to, to think otherwise, and likewise with what's happening now. But does that mean that I'm contending that, that Republicans, you know, wouldn't object if Democrats were doing it? Of course they would object. That's, that's, that's you know, this sort of back and forth political fight is exactly what our system contemplates. There's nothing wrong with that. So I think everybody agrees that it's going to be problematic to try to actually have a vote before the election, just given the amount of time. I mean, it, you know, it may be done, but, you know, I'm sure the Democrats have ways to try to slow the process down. And uh, so it's, it's going to be tough if this goes to after the election and Joe Biden wins and the Democrats retake control of the Senate, would you still advocate for a lame duck Republican Senate to try to ram through a confirmation before Inauguration Day, even though the voters have already spoken? Look, the, the, the president, uh, under your scenario, is president until uh, the new president is sworn in. The Senate is the Senate until the new Senate is sworn in. So, yes, they, sh- they should exercise their responsibilities. But, Ed, don't... I mean, from, a public, I mean just, po- from a public policy yeah. point of view, you know, thinking about the good of the country and how that would look and how folks would react in that scenario, would, yes, it can be done. Are you saying it should be done? Well, look, there are too many you know, contingencies in your hypothetical for me to speculate about. So... You know, I can imagine a situation in which uh, one would say, hey, uh, just not worth it. But I don't think the threat from the left of riots and destruction and, you know, killings should be given uh, any weight in the process, just, you know, to the contrary. So, um, you know, I, I, look, I understand the intense feelings on both sides. I think in many ways, you know, we live in a, a grievance a, a political culture of grievances in which both sides have convinced themselves that they're more aggrieved than the other. But I, I don't see a, 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 some sort of principled reason 
uh, in the abstract, you know, again, perhaps concretely, uh, I, I, you know, I might agree with you under the scenario, you know, in, in, in November, but I don't see a concrete reason in the abstract to say, oh, you know, in, in, that, in this situation, the Senate should not act. Well, let me just probe just a little bit more on, on that, because, you know, one of the main arguments, which I think you alluded to, that, you know, Senator McConnell, Leader McConnell has put forward and other Republicans is that because they control both the White House and the Senate, that they've got, you know, a popular mandate to do this right now. And I guess the question is, if in a lame duck session with a president, a, a president to be Biden and a Democratic Senate soon to be seated, is that argument somewhat diminished? I mean, do they have the same mandate that they had in a lame duck session Look, uh, where they've lost the Senate and the presidency? There are political constraints that will shape all this. You know, one can imagine scenarios under which um, some Republican senators might say, aha, things are dramatically different now. We shouldn't go through with this. One can imagine other situations in which to say, yes, we ought to stick with this. I, 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 the, the question is really too abstract for me to say more than that. It doesn't seem that abstract because, I mean, it, it looks to me like a, you know, certainly plausible, if not likely, scenario that this is going to go into um, a post-election fight. But as a purely practical matter, I don't think I, I haven't heard any leading Democrats or any Democrats at all calling for riots or violence in the street. But they are talking about if they get back control of the Senate, expanding the Supreme Court by at least a couple of justices, making D.C. a state in which they'll get two Democratic senators, and um, ending the filibuster. Now, if you're Mitch McConnell, one would have to assume that that's something you have to think about, because if you lose the majority, all that is on the table. How would you argue that that which the Democrats under the Constitution can do, they should not do when you are arguing for Republicans to push through this confirmation right now? Well, for starters, I certainly do not agree that D.C. statehood is something that can be done by statute. Uh, I, don't, I don't agree with that uh, at all. I mean, I did Alaska and Hawaii were admitted uh, without a constitutional amendment by statute. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. What states are admitted I'm sorry, to the I mean union? To say, there's a, there's a states are admitted to the there's, union. There's some sort of D.C. statehood bill that that um, I'm sorry, you're right. States can be admitted. States can be admitted by statute. I'm sorry, but there's some sort of uh, uh, but uh, but D.C. has a special status under the Constitution already, and to transform that into a, a state would, I believe, require a constitutional amendment. D.C. already has three electoral votes. So, you know, it has this, spe uh, this very special status. But in any event, to, to, to turn to your question, again, part of my answer is that, that uh, you know, politics properly constrains what is actually feasible. Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself was clear that she did not think that court packing was a good idea. I think it's a way of simply destroying the court in the name of, of saving it. Uh, look, if you if you look back to what to these changes that have happened recently, they've all been initiated by Democrats and then extended by Republicans. And it's going to be I speak of the abolition of the judicial filibuster in 2013 by Harry Reid, and then you know the abolition of the Supreme Court filibuster in 2017 after Democrats in a historic blunder filibustered uh, the, the the Gorsuch nomination. You can go back to the launch of the filibuster against um, the lower court nominees in, 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 uh, in 2003. 
So if there's an effort to add, you know, two justices to the court, and before you know it, when the configuration changes, um, Republicans will add two more, and soon we'll have a 67-member court. And, you know, that's, it will not be regarded as a court at all. Now, you know, some, some might prefer that, but I just say those who, who purport to care about the court as an institution, I find it very strange that they're proposing this sort of court back. And as I understand, Joe Biden has opposed this um, so far, at least. Yeah, I think that is right. He has opposed it. And I don't think he's all that hot on the filibuster either, but he's uh, a Senate institutionalist and these well, things can change. Yeah. And, and look, there are lots of, I think there are lots of uh, Democratic senators who would be very reluctant to abolish the legislative filibuster. The legislative filibuster serves the interests of individual senators and making sure that there's a supermajority before there's any grand transformational change. And despite all the heated talk right now, I think there are a lot of senators who'd be reluctant to, uh, to alter that. Again, in part because they would know that not too far down the road, the um, you know, Republicans would use their simple majority power to enact transformative legislation that Democrats would oppose. Okay, well, with the time remaining, uh, let's talk a little bit about these um, candidates that President Trump is is considering. And we're hearing from our reporters who are out there uh, talking to sources that it, at right now it is really between a- uh, Amy Coney Barrett and Barbara Lagoa. So, Amy, let's begin with Amy Coney Barrett, who Trump himself has said he was waiting for Justice Ginsburg's retirement or demise, I guess, that he would seriously consider filling that seat with uh, Amy Coney Barrett. Tell us about her. Tell us about, uh, I assume you think she would be a home run for the president? From everything I know and hear about her, you know, she would be outstanding. Look, she is a, a former Scalia law clerk. She was a very distinguished professor at Notre Dame. Her academic work is admired across the board. When she was nominated to the Seventh Circuit in 2017, every single Supreme Court clerk from the term that she clerked signed a letter attesting to her great qualities and supporting uh, her nomination. That includes um, lots of very prominent uh, liberal academics. She's, I think, been very effective uh, on the Seventh Circuit these last three years. And uh, yeah, I think there's uh, ample reason to think that uh, she'd be great. Do you believe she would be a vote to overturn Roe versus Wade? I sure hope so. Well, you know, she has been described as a as a textualist, as an originalist. She's been critical of the Roe decision. Uh, but I, I, I saw today that she gave a talk at Jacksonville University in which she said that she believed, this is according to the New York Times, the core holdings of Roe that, w- that women would have the right to an abortion would not change in the future. And that, but there could or would likely be restrictions on uh, placed on abortion. So, you know, conservatives sometimes talk about the greenhouse effect in reference to Linda Greenhouse, that nominees who everyone believes would vote the way they want them to vote would vote as a, you know, a, a conservative sometimes change their their positions once they get on the court, whether it was Justice Souter or even Chief Justice Roberts. So how confident are you sitting here right now that she would do that, she would vote to overturn Roe versus Wade? Well, look, I can't assert any particular degree of confidence. I actually don't think it's correct that she's just said anything um, specific about Roe negatively in the past. I have seen that, that quote that you said about uh, her, her prediction that Roe itself wouldn't be overturned. What, what year was that, by the way? Do you have that handy? I 
I don't. I don't have it in front of me now. Okay. In any event, um, look, if she's uh, faithful to principles of originalism and textualism, she'll recognize, as frankly almost everyone um, across the ideological spectrum recognizes, that Roe was wrongly decided. You had lots of liberal law scholars saying it's uh, is in indefensible. Uh, obviously, you get to the stare decisis question, uh, which is notwithstanding its error, you know, should it be overturned? You know, that's uh, a, a question on which, you know, it, I would hope very much that she sees that it's corrupted American politics for, you know, decades now, that returning this issue to the people, which of course is what returning Ro uh, overturning Roe means, not outlawing abortion, it is instead letting the people of each state uh, decide what the abortion laws in their states ought to be. I would think she would recognize that that would undo the, 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 the corruption of the political process, but I don't claim to know her mind. What can you tell us about Barbara Lagoa? Well, I, I probably know even less about Barbara Lagoa than I, than I do about Judge Barrett. Barbara Lagoa is a very accomplished jurist in Florida. She served on an intermediate appellate court in Florida for about 13 years very short tenure on the Florida Supreme Court before being appointed to the 11th Circuit, the regional appellate court, last year by President Trump. I've heard great things about her, both you know, professionally and, and personally. She has, uh, you know, she's a, a uh, Cuban-American um, daughter of, of refugees, I believe, um, who has very much lived the American dream and I think appreciates the fragility uh, of freedom. Um, uh, you know, I, she doesn't, again, she's been on the 11th Circuit for, for only, um, actually less than, a, less than a year now, so um, there's not an extensive record there, but everything I, uh, everything I hear is, is very strong. Do you have, Ed, any thoughts on what, how President Trump is thinking about this decision? Because, you know, he certainly would excite a lot of, uh, you're smiling. <laughs> well, I, I, I certainly don't claim to have a, a reading on, on, on President Trump's mind. But, okay, but, but I just mean, what... your question. I mean, obviously, every White House on every Supreme Court nomination looks for the political upside. That's always the case. That search for political upside might well be even keener in uh, this particular environment. So, uh, and again, I think, I think there are strong cases to be made for either um, Judge Barrett or for Judge Lagoa. For Judge Lagoa, the, the pitch would be, look, here's a way to secure Florida. Here's a way to have appeal to Hispanic Americans in important states throughout the country. Here's someone, you know, who, who will uh, come across very well for you. Now, that's, that last point would be the same for uh, Judge Barrett, but, you know, she's from Indiana. And the, the political case there is really, uh, I think, more to, uh, a little more to establish legal conservatives uh, who, who know Amy Barrett more than they know Barbara Lagoa and think that she's an outstanding legal mind that would see her as a great Supreme Court justice. Well, do you think Donald Trump actually cares about legal conservatives? Well, I think he knows and has shown that he knows that legal conservatives and, and voters out there who trust legal conservatives are an important part of his constituency. So I, I, I think uh, if he were um, making a political calculus here, he would, you know, he would see some significant uh, political upside to the, the, the Barrett nomination, just to see what to, to, to Lagoa. I can't pretend to gauge how he would see or how, he is or how his advisors would see one versus the other. Two quick final questions. Um, you know, one is uh, who do you think would be easier to confirm? 
Uh, boy, uh, uh, it seems like a wash to me. I mean, I, I will say that, you know, right now, the Republicans with 53 members have, have uh, seemingly lost Collins and Murkowski. That actually puts them, I think, in a better position than they had two years ago when they had 51 members with Collins and Murkowski because they no longer have to worry about losing Collins and Murkowski. <laughs> in other words, they're the same 51 um, with uh, the, the, the remaining senators stronger. Uh, so I don't see uh, you know, why either of these picks would uh, lose any um, Senate Republican support. Which other Republicans do you think the White House could lose here? I mean, Romney? Uh, look, folks, talk about uh, uh, talk about him. You, you you have a better read on on him than I, than I would. I think that you know he would recognize that the the justices that President Trump has already appointed have um, been advocates of the rule of law. I've already ruled against uh, 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 you know President Trump. You know, in some cases of personal importance to him. So I think that you know Mitt Romney ought, ought to recognize that the interest of the rule of law would be served by getting another good justice on the court. Um, last question. You uh, stirred up some controversy a couple of years ago during the Kavanaugh fight when you tweeted suggesting that uh, Christine Blasey Ford was mistaken about who it was had done what she said had been done to her. You apologized at the time, but looking back on it now, do you regret your role in that and your thoughts on the on just how acrimonious that battle became and what impact that will have, lingering impact that will have on what we're about to go through. Of course, I regret my role. I have apologized fully and sincerely. I've done so uh, in numerous ways. Uh, it wasn't some sort of one-time thing. It was a terrible, passion-fueled uh, blunder on my part, something I uh, sincerely believe, but my um, judgment was uh, addled at the time, and I make no defense for it. I stand by my my apology. Look, uh, apart from that, obviously there there were um, lots lots of uh, intensity, lots of uh, you know uh, some behavior by different people on both sides, some of which has never been apologized for. Um, that um, obviously has created a lot of acrimony and. You know, I sure wish there were a way to um, dial it down. How we do that, I simply don't know. And, uh, you know, in a way, the... Well, and some would say one way to do it is not ramming through a, uh, a Supreme Court nominee in the closing weeks of a uh, U.S. presidential election. Well, you know... Uh, and, and again, I, I understand and respect that that is, um, you know, your your perspective. What, you know, what folks on the left, you know, objected to on the Scalia vacancy and what they're objecting to now, again, is exactly the course of action that that, that, that they would have pursued. I, I, I really don't, you know, again, Republicans would object to it, as we said, as we said before, but I, I don't think that uh, one can expect some sort of uh, unilateral surrender here. I will say, um, perhaps closing on a uh, bipartisan note, that the friendship between um, Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg, a, a friendship that puzzled a lot of people, I think really does provide a model for many of us going forward. The lesson isn't that you hide your differences, but the lesson is 
that you know you can know and like and respect people who have very different views from you, and you can learn from them. And I wish in these intensely politicized times that um, all of us could uh, uh, learn learn more from them on that. Well, maybe we can all go to the opera together. <laughs> that might be too much to, to, to uh, maybe a baseball game. Okay? I'd like yeah. Mitch McConnell. Okay. How yeah. about Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer at the opera sitting next to each other? <laughs> I think uh, that is an opera. Let's go through that. Yeah. Right. All right. All right. Well, Ed, uh, thanks uh, for joining us. And um, we will want to stay in touch as this battle royale unfolds. Thank you, guys.